me please this morning to uh, the little book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Let's just find that together. I just want to read a couple of verses. <clears throat> chapter 1, Ruth chapter 1, and reading verse 16 and 17. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you, or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. Amen. Now most of you are very familiar, I'm sure, with the story of Ruth. Over the years we have preached on it in your private devotions. I'm sure you've read it, but for those of you who aren't, uh, let me give you a little bit of a background first of all. Uh, the book of Ruth, story of Ruth, is set during the time of the Judges. Now, this was a, a long extended period in Israel's history, which was a very turbulent time. And children of Israel would compromise with their pagan neighbors. And after a lengthy period of compromise, Lo and behold, they found themselves under servitude to their pagan neighbors. And then that may last a generation, may last 40 years. Several cases, it did last 40 years. And then when they were thoroughly sick and tired of it, they would cry unto God for deliverance, that God would save them. And God in His mercy would raise up a judge, a deliverer, be it a man or a woman. And they would go to battle against their enemies. And having defeated their enemies, then there would be a, an extended period of peace. And again, that may last for a generation or maybe even 40 years. And then lo and behold, Israel would backslide. And they would compromise again. And after a while, they'd be under servitude again to their pagan neighbors. And then they would cry unto God, and God would raise up a judge and deliver and set them free again. And that whole sorry saga would repeat itself over and over again. So in the midst of battlefields, we have the story of Ruth that was set in barley fields. This is a, an idyllic pastoral scene in the midst of all of that turmoil that was going on. In the midst of warfare, there was a wedding. Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, lived in Bethlehem. And there was a very severe famine in the land at this time. And famine often in the Old Testament was a sign of God's displeasure upon a nation. And so Elimelech decided that he would take his wife and his two boys to the land of Moab. Uh, and I, I, no doubt he felt justified in his reasons for doing that. He would say, well, there's a famine uh, and work has dried up and it's very scarce and Moab is a prosperous nation. And if we go there, uh, I'll find work, we'll be able to eat. And 
anyway, it's only temporary. It'll just be for a short time until things pick up here, and then we'll just come straight back again and, and take up where we left off. That was the plan. That was his thinking. And the trouble was it was a disastrous plan. An unmitigated disaster of a plan. Uh, because Moab was a very pagan nation. Very pagan. They worshipped cruel and vile gods. They worshipped the god of Moloch. And Moloch was a god to whom they would burn alive their sons. They worshipped Ashtoreth, fertility god. Many of them would give up their young, tender daughters to be temple prostitutes, to be abused by the priests. And so it was a wicked nation. And for Elimelech to decide rather than trust God in the midst of famine, in the very land that God had covenanted to meet his people, the place of which is the spiritual center of worship for them, where all of their laws and their customs and their very inheritance was, he decided he would turn his back on all of that and go to Moab. This was a disaster. And even though he felt that it would be temporary, but actually... Elimelech and his two sons, they went to live there and then they died there and then they were buried there. Never did actually get back to their homeland. And so sadly for Elimelech, what he thought was a temporary fix lasted for 10 years. And because... Naomi, his wife, lost her husband and her two sons. She became a, an extremely bitter woman. Bitter against life. Bitter against God. Her name, Naomi, means pleasant. And she said, call me not pleasant, call me Mara, which means bitter. She says, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and I'm coming back empty. And so, thus far, it's a sad tale, isn't it? But now, after 10 years, having buried her husband and her two sons, who had married two women of Moab, and now she's left with these two daughters-in-law, but suddenly she hears from home and the news is that the famine's over. That things really has picked up in Israel. And there's great harvest to be had. And so encouraged by that, she decides that she'll go back to her land. And she'll go back to her God. And she'll go back to her family, her relatives. She got back to that which was familiar, the place of worship, the place, the land where God had covenanted to meet with her and the people of Israel. So all that was left now on her part was to say to her two daughters-in-law, 
break the news to them that she was returning, bid them farewell, and say, God bless you. But over the past 10 years, something had been happening to these two young Moabite girls. They had observed at close quarters the difference between this family and the Moabites. And there was a big difference. And even though that Elimelech and Naomi and Malon and Kilion, even though that spiritually they were not in the place where they should have been, apart from being in this far country that spiritually they were far from where they used to be and where they should have been. But in spite of even all of that, over those 10 years, no doubt, particularly in the early years, they would tell the stories of Jehovah, the one true and the living God. No doubt they told them about how that God had brought them out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and how they had wandered in the wilderness for those 40 years and how God fed them with angels' food, the Bible calls it, manna from heaven and quails to eat and water out of a rock that fed and gave drink to two million people. And sure, they would tell them how that when they came to the land, how that the first city they came to was a great wall city, Jericho, and how that God supernaturally caused the walls to crash down and fall down flat, and they took that city, and they took city after city after city, and God was with them. They would talk about the kindness of Jehovah and the compassion of their God compared to the Moabite gods who were bloodthirsty and wicked and evil. So this Jehovah that they had heard about for so many years was a far cry from the gods that they knew. The gods that would take their little children and burn them alive and sacrifice them and pervert them. And so having told now Ruth and Orpah her intention to return to Israel and to return to Jehovah and land of the covenant, place of blessing, she now turns for home. So what would these two girls do? Would they go with Naomi? Would they embrace Jehovah? Or would they go back to their old way of life? It was make your mind up time. It was crunch time. This was a pivotal moment in their young lives. What they would do at this point would shape their lives not just in time, but in eternity. And every one of us has pivotal moments, make your mind up times, crunch times, crossroads we come to, and the decisions we take at those crossroads will determine not just the rest of our lives now, but often our eternal future. And so what happens next shows that, that Ruth especially was transformed by God. She had undergone a major change in her life, and what she says next is the evidence of a transformed life. So this brings us to the point where we came into this story in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. This is one of the most touching and beautiful and poignant pleas in all of Scripture. And it reveals to us seven signs of a transformed life. 
If our lives are transformed, it will show it. There will be signs, not only that we will recognize, but others will recognize in us. And so I want us now to just focus a little bit here on Ruth and look at these several signs that speak of a transformed life. And let's see if we recognize them in our lives, at least some of them. First of all, a new determination. A new determination. Entreat me not to leave you or turn from following after you. Now, Naomi gave these two girls several opportunities to turn back. Verse 8, verse 11, and verse 15. Three opportunities, clear cut, to turn back, not to go with her, but to return to their own land. They had actually had begun to go with her. And it wasn't that she was testing them to see would they or not. She actually meant it. Now remember Naomi at this time, she's basically backslidden. She's bitter as gall. She thinks God has damaged her. She thinks God has failed her. She thinks God's not even on her side anymore. What a terrible piece of advice she gave these young women. Imagine telling them to go back to the gods that they used to serve. Sadly, Orpah took her advice. Maybe the stories of Jehovah just didn't quite resonate in her heart the way it did in Ruth's heart. Or maybe she thought about what Naomi said because Naomi said, you know, you know, if you go back with me, I'm old and even if I did marry again and even if I could have children, I mean, you, you wouldn't wait for them till they're full grown. It's ridiculous. No, you just better go back to your own people and to your own gods. Just better stay here. And so maybe Orpah thought about that and thought, you know, that makes sense. I, I'm, a, I'm a widow and I, I don't want to be a widow all of my life. I'm still young and I've got a whole future ahead of me and I don't want to be on my own the rest of my life. And if I go back to Israel, she's already said there's no chance of a husband. And probably they felt that anyway because her Moabites come back to Israel chances of an Israelite marrying a Moabite, I mean, that was just very, very, very slim indeed, and they knew that. And so she probably weighed all up the options and said, well, I think I'll just cut my losses and I'll just go back to my family, my old way of life, and I'll meet somebody in Moab and we'll get married and we'll settle down. We never hear of Orpah again. She just wanders off the pages of history and she's gone. And so Orpah turned back, never spoken of again. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. You know, Jesus didn't paint a bed of roses if you become a believer. Sure he didn't. Verse 25 of Luke 14, now great multitudes went with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. 
Now, Jesus is not, this is a Hebrew idiom. He's not saying to actually physically hit your father, your mother, your brother, and sisters. It means, unless you prefer me before them. But it's said in the negative to make the absolute point. Unless you prefer me before them. Unless you put me first, even before your family, you cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he is enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation to ask conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. <clears throat> then in John chapter 6, <clears throat> Jesus is talking to his disciples about being the bread of life and that we're to feast on him the bread of life and in verse 60 then it says therefore many of his disciples when they heard this said this is a hard saying who can understand it because they thought he was speaking literally and Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this he said to them does this offend you what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I said unto you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. And from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. And so Jesus repeatedly spelled out the cost of being a follower of his. And Ruth here, her response shows a, a new determination. Because in verse 18 of chapter 1 of Ruth, she says, When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. There was something in her voice there was something, the look in her eye said to Naomi, she's determined to come with me. I can't dissuade her. And so, whenever you and I become followers of Christ, one of the signs that we truly are to followers is that there is a new determination that we are fully resolved to be a follower of Christ, no matter what comes, no matter what cost is involved. Secondly, there is a new direction. Wherever you go, I will go. The direction of your life will show whether your life has been transformed or not. When you become a believer in Christ, there's a new direction in your life. Is the direction of our lives today, is it Godward? 
Is it upward? Is it heavenward? Is it Christward? Because that's the direction, that's the new direction that we have. Whenever we talk about repentance, we're not just talking about a change of heart or even a change of mind, all that's involved, but we're talking about a change of direction. We were going that way, and now we're going this way. And it's a very clear-cut change of direction. And you will notice it in your life, and others will notice it too, that you're on a new direction. When Jesus said, I am the way, that's a new direction for us. In fact, in the book of Acts, in chapter 24, that's what the early disciples were called. They were called people of this way. Now, it was said very disparagingly. It was a put-down. They took it as a compliment. People of this way. Do you ever notice how when you become a Christian, you become singled out among your work colleagues or your school friends or whatever the case may be? Oh, you see him, you see her, they're good living now. They're holy rollers now. Well, instead of taking that as a complaint, take it as a compliment. Say, yes, there's a new direction in my life. And whatever you want to call it, I'm a follower of Jesus. <laughs> Glory to God. <laughs> and if your life has truly changed direction, people will notice it. In Matthew, tw Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about two roads, doesn't he? Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. But because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So the reality is, once you become a disciple of Jesus, you're going to be in the minority. You will probably always be in the minority in the place where you work, in this class you're in, in the school you go to, or among your neighbors. But that's okay. That's the narrow way. You're in trouble if you're on the Broadway. You may have lots more with you on the Broadway, but you're in trouble because you're heading for destruction, Jesus said. But if you're on the narrow way, you're heading for life. It's a narrow gate. And there may be fewer with you, but you're on the right direction. I would rather be on the road that's going the right direction, only a few of us on it, than on the wrong road, and there's lots of people on it. There's a new direction for our lives. There's a new dependence. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Ruth was saying to Naomi, from this day onwards, I am totally dependent upon you. I am coming under your authority. Now remember, she's leaving family. She's leaving relatives. She's leaving her customs. She's leaving all that she knew that was familiar to her all of her life. She's now coming under the authority. She's coming under the dependence of this woman, Naomi. And whenever you and I become born again, we come under the authority of Jesus and we become completely dependent upon Him. He is the one who's going to take care of us 
We come dependent upon him. Are you dependent upon Christ? Paul puts it this way. In Philippians 3, he said, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Indeed, I count things, all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I might win Christ. Everything that Paul depended on as a Jew, as a learner Jew, as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Everything he counted as precious and important, he says, I count it now as rubbish that I may win Christ. I am no longer dependent on any of that. Before he was proud of it and very dependent on it, he says, no more. He said, it means nothing to me now. I'm dependent upon Christ. So when I say a new dependence, that's what I mean. And then a new desire. Your people shall be my people. Now this was a big, bold step for a Moabite girl. She's now going to spend the rest of her life and she's going to be around the people of God. Is your desire to be around the people of God? Your people shall be my people. Is your desire to be around the people of God? Whose company do you prefer? Who are you more comfortable being with, believers or non-believers? That's an important question. This helps us determine where we are spiritually. Do you want to be around the people of God or do you not? Who do you want to run with? What crowd do you run with? Now, I know that we've got to reach out and we've got to reach into the world that's around us. And we've got to do that. And we've got to befriend people and encourage people and help people. Thank God we do that. But we don't become like the world. We're out of it. We're in it, but we're not of it. And so we have to ask ourselves, whose company do we prefer? Our desire, our lack of it, to be in God's house may be an indicator. Do we love the house of God or do we not? Or do we play church? Do we go to church if it's convenient, if it fits in with our schedule, or do we love the house of God? These are questions we need to ask ourselves. You know, we need to take spiritual inventory from time to time, don't we? We really do. We need to sit up and say, where am I spiritually before God? And here's some of the signs. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, the writer to Hebrews talks about those who have forsaken the house of God. No longer come to the house of God, he said. Now, Hebrews was going through a difficult time, lots of persecution, a lot of stuff happening. It was very difficult to be a believer in those days. So he says, some even no longer come to the house of God. I think sometimes whenever we think about heaven as Christians, we're kidding ourselves. I really do. I think sometimes people see heaven as some kind of a holiday resort. You know, some kind of place where you chill out 
with a book under a palm tree. Kind of an eternal vacation. Heaven's not a bit like that. I think sometimes maybe some people are going to be a little bit disappointed because they got a completely wrong idea of what heaven's going to be like. Are we prepared for what heaven's going to be like? If we struggle to be at the house of God, if we struggle to be around God's people, how in the world are we going to enjoy heaven? There's going to be nobody else there, only believers. And if you're really struggling being around them here, what are you going to be like there? <laughs> eh? I'm serious. If you find it difficult being at the place of worship here, what's it going to be like there? Let me give you a taste of it. Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold... A great multitude which no one could number of all nations, of tribes, of peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying out to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and honor, sorry, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and forever. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come? From when did they come? And he said, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in the temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell with them. Does that sound like somewhere you'd want to be? Would you be excited to be there? I hope so. Now, heaven's not going to be like one long church service, by the way, either. You'd be glad to hear that. And there'll be no preachers. You'd be doubly glad to hear that. Say, David, you're going to be redundant when you get to heaven. No, I don't think so. I think the Lord will have plenty for us all to do. Now, you may be disappointed in hearing that, but that's the truth of it. In Revelation chapter 19. Verse 4. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of a mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fire. Fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. He said to me, Right, blessed are they who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Your people shall be my people. 
Now, I know that sometimes we rub each other up the wrong way. And sometimes we get up each other's noses. And that's our humanity, isn't it? Sometimes our personalities clash and all of that. But I would rather be around the people of God than anyone else on earth. And that's the truth. I'd rather be in the house of God than anywhere else on earth. You know, I was thinking the other day, and this may apply to some of you as well. I was thinking the other day, you know, I have served God in this house half my lifetime. In fact, more than just more than half my lifetime has been in this house. And do you know what? I wouldn't have changed it for the world. And I've have to spend the whole of my lifetime in this house, and I don't know whether God will permit that, but if I have to, so be it. I'm happy to be in the house of the Lord to be with the people of God. In spite of all her foibles and her faults and her feelings and all of her quirky bits and all the rest of it, I would rather be here, eh? Your people shall be my people. And then there's a new devotion. Your God shall be my God. See, in spite of Naomi's spiritual state, because she's feeling bitter, she's grumbling about God, moaning about her lot in life. But Ruth must have been impressed with the fact that in spite of all of that, Naomi still wanted to go back to the place where God had covenanted to meet her. She still wanted to go back to the place where God's people were. She still wanted to go back to the place where the one true and living God was worshipped. And I think that Ruth, of all the things that she saw about Naomi in those 10 years, and when it came right to the crunch, in spite of seeing her hurt and her pain and her loss and her grief and all of that stuff and her, her bitterness now, in spite of all of that, she still wants to go back. And I think that must have struck a chord in Ruth's heart. And even though Naomi said that God had brought her out full, but he had sent her back empty, I think that Ruth must have felt that Naomi would rather be empty than have God than be full without God. I would rather be empty and have God than be full without God. I'd rather have nothing and have God than have everything without God. And I think that how you handle adversity in life, I think that will affect others around you. So in spite of her weaknesses, in spite of her feelings, in spite of sometimes tripping up and falling and all the rest of it, but if her determination is to go with God in spite of all of that, in spite of all that we come through in life, we're still determined to go with God. I think that affects other people. I think they watch that and they see how you're going to handle it. So here's a new devotion. Your God shall be my God. There's something about your God, Naomi. And I don't see it in the gods of the Moabites. I don't see compassion. I see cruelty. I don't even see justice. I just see wickedness and unrighteousness. But there's something about your God, Naomi. There's something about the God, Jehovah, that's attracting me. There's something about all those stories you told me. There's something about right now that you want to go back to that God and to that land and that place of worship that's attractive to me. So your God, I want your God to be my God. 
Wouldn't it be a lovely thought that somebody was watching your life and they looked at your life over an extended period and they saw all that you came through, all the stuff that you had to face, all the hurt and the pain and the disappointments of life, even through all of that and you're still standing. Wouldn't it be lovely to think that they would look at you and say, you know, I, I would like to have what they have. I, I think I would like to follow their God. I would like to know this Jesus that they serve. Wouldn't that be lovely to think that? Well, let me give you a little bit of news. People are watching you. They are looking. Whether you want them to or not, they are looking and they're watching. So what's the signal we're going to send to them? I think the signal is, no matter what happens in life, we're going through with God. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And when people see that, then they take notice. A new dedication. Where you die, I will die. Naomi, I'm with you for life. Naomi, I'm signing up for the duration. <laughs> Naomi, I'm not for turning back. Naomi, I burnt all my bridges. I'm dedicating my life to you right to the very end. That's what God wants to hear from us. Lord, I'm with you right to the end. I'm not going back. I've signed up for the duration. I'm not playing at this. I'm not just dabbling my toe in the water to see how it works. I mean this. I'm fully determined to go with you all the way. You see, dedication is what God wants. He wants a dedication. He wants us to be totally dedicated to him. Here's what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10. Now the just shall live by faith. Verse 38, 39. The just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. It doesn't mean God doesn't love us, but there's no pleasure in us. It doesn't give God any pleasure to see us drawn back. It gives no pleasure at, that, at all. But we are not of those who draw back unto perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Writer says, some in Hebrews, he says, have stopped coming to church. They've given up. They've forsaken it altogether. But he says, not us. He says, we believe to the saving of the soul. We're in this for the long haul. Are you in this for the long haul? All right, you've had your ups, you've had your downs, you've had stuff happen to you, things took place, you get disappointments, offenses, all kinds of things happen. But are you in this for the long haul? I'm in this for the long haul. With the grace of God, we're going to keep going until Jesus ever comes or calls. Amen. And then finally, a new destiny. And there will I be buried. A new destiny. Ruth didn't know it. But when Ruth said those beautiful words to Naomi, she didn't know that God had a beautiful destiny for her. And just in closing... Let me remind you what that destiny was. Whenever they went back to the homeland, 
They were stony broke. They had nothing. In fact, they were so poor that all there was left to do, because this was part of the law, and no doubt Naomi had told uh, Ruth a little bit about the law. And part of the law was, if you're really, really poor, when it comes harvest time, if you go out into the fields, you follow along behind the reapers, and whatever corn or wheat they drop, they're not allowed to pick it up. That's to be left for the poor. So you pick it up. That's the data. If you're really, really poor and you have no other way it means to eat, at least follow the reapers and you'll get enough food for that day. So that's exactly what Ruth did. So she looked for a field to go into. So she stepped out and she looked and there was a field. The reapers were ready in action. And so she went and she joined the reapers. And then the man who owned the field, Boaz, was a very wealthy, wealthy man. And he said to the reapers, he says, see that young woman there? He says, make sure that no men harm her. Now, she's a foreigner. She's in a foreign land. But you make sure no men harm her and make sure she gets plenty to drink in the heat of the sun and make sure she stays with the women folk here. So he's very protective. And the reason is, is because he really fancies her. That's the blunt truth of it. He really fancies her. So she spent the whole day gathering up with a big lap full of corn. She goes back to Naomi. Naomi says, where hast thou gleaned today? Oh, she says, I've been to the field of Boaz. And they were very, very good to me there. Really took care of me. And Naomi, suddenly the light went on. You know, you can see Naomi changing from that better backslidden state. Suddenly she's changed. She says, you're in the field of Boaz? Do you not know who Boaz is? He's a relative. He's a relative of my husband, my late husband. And he's very, very wealthy. So you go back to his field. You do what he said. And you go back there every day. And he'll take care of you. And so that's what she did. And then Naomi said, hey, listen. Here's an opportunity here. Here's an opportunity. She started to matchmake. Now, there was another law called the law of the kinsman redeemer. I haven't time to go into all of that this morning. You've heard me on that before. It's a wonderful law. It's a great picture of Christ. It says this is the law of the kinsman redeemer. So because he's a, a relative of ours, he can actually redeem us. He can buy back. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lovely picture of Christ redeeming us, buying us back. It's a long story anyway. You can't go into it. But anyway, here's what she says. Here's what you need to do. You need to go back to, to and you need to see Boaz. And, and you need to let him know that, hey, you can marry me. You're a near relative. Through my, my father-in-law, through my husband. And so she spelled it out to him. You know, first of all, she says, uh, why are you so kind to me? Why are you doing this so nicely to me? And he says, well, it's been told me how kind you were to Naomi. It's been told me how that you gave up the land of your fathers and you came here. I wonder who told him that? The word spread. Naomi had told everybody. But this young woman in the story. And so he fell in love. Long story short, they got married. They get married. He redeemed her. And they get married. And then they had a little baby. 
and the little baby was called Obed. And then Obed grew up, he got married, he had a boy, and he called him Jesse. And then Jesse had a boy later on in life called David, King David. So little Obed became the grandfather of the great King David, the greatest king that Israel ever had. Not bad for a wee girl from Moab. She didn't know when she said those words to Naomi that that was her destiny, that God had got a great future for her. In fact, David's greater son is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you read Matthew chapter 1 this Christmas time, the genealogy of Christ, you'll find the story of Ruth and Obed and how that Ruth and Boaz begat Obed and Obed begat Jesse and Jesse begat David and then Jesus became David's greater son. So whenever you sign up, whenever you say, Lord, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to be a real Christian, and I'm going to stop fooling about with this world, and I'm going to give you my life totally and completely, you will have a destiny, a future that God has planned for you that you'll step right into. And it'll be wonderful. It'll be a glorious future. And it'll take you beyond time. It'll take you all the way through eternity. So whenever little Ruth said those words to Naomi, she didn't realize that God was going to take her and use her even to be in the very family tree of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, whenever she came into that land, she didn't think anybody would marry her. A foreigner, a Moabite. Moabites were the bitter enemies of Israel. And whenever a near relative than Boaz, because it was the nearest relative, had to be the kinsman, had a nearer relative than Boaz, when he got the opportunity, he didn't take it. He didn't want it. Because he didn't want his lineage tainted and stained with Moabite blood in case the Messiah would come through his lineage. But Boaz didn't care. You know why he didn't care? Do you know who his mother was? Rahab the harlot. That's who his mother was. So he didn't care. He just loved her and he took her. And you know what? God didn't care either. <laughs> because they're all in the lineage of Jesus. Isn't it a lovely story? But it's our story too. Because there are seven signs of a transformed life. Surely some of those signs are in my life and in your life today. Amen? Let's pray.